and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Jeff Schessel back to the program today for the second part of a two-part interview. Jeff worked as a speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, as a communication strategist, and even as a cartoonist. His previous books include Supreme Power, Franklin Roosevelt versus the Supreme Court, and Mutual Contempt, Lyndon Johnson, Robert Kennedy, and the Feud That Defined a Decade. Today, we'll be talking about his latest book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground for the Cold War, which is published by W.W. Norton. Let's look at the election of 1960, John Kennedy versus Richard Nixon. What place does the space race play in the campaigning and the rhetoric that they're using? Kennedy in 1960 brings up space pretty frequently because he sees its power as a symbol. The theme of the Kennedy campaign in 1960 is essentially that America has been complacent for years, that it has lost its energy, its initiative, its boldness, the spirit that America had during World War II, that it it seems to have evaporated and that people have become too comfortable in their material splendor, that America needed to get moving again, as, as he said. And this was very well represented by what was happening in space. Why? Why had we lost the initiative in space? Why was the Soviet Union which was in many ways a backward country economically. Why was it so far ahead of us in this new field of science and technology? And so Kennedy understood that that space was a a powerful symbol for the way that many Americans felt about the state of the country at that point. And so he talked about it a lot. He often said that to be second in space in the eyes of the world was to be second in science and technology. It was to be second in military power, It was to be second in the existential struggle between freedom and totalitarianism. And it was left to Nixon, who, of course, had been Eisenhower's vice president, to try to defend the space program. And he would often cite numbers to show that the United States had actually been more successful than the Soviet Union in sending up satellites. Maybe the Soviets did it first, but the U.S. had sent up more satellites than than Russia had. Well, that happened to be true, but it also happened to be beside the point. It was very difficult to convince people that the number of meteorological satellites that the U.S. had sent up into space put us ahead in the space race when the Soviet Union was achieving one spectacular thing after another. So Kennedy ran on this in part. It was not the major issue by any means in the campaign, but it it was a frequent reference. The problem was that when he then got elected, he was expected to take America from second place in space to first place, but he didn't have a plan for how to do that. And he did not get right to work on it because he had a lot of other things to worry about. It seems there was a gap between what he said publicly and what he wanted to be a priority in his administration. This was not a huge priority for him. He did recognize that he would have to do something about it. He just wasn't sure what it would be. So the first thing that he did was he decided to to study it or to have someone study it and report to him. So He asked his science advisor, a veteran of the Manhattan Project named Jerome Wisner, he asked Wisner to study the space program. And to call Wisner a a space skeptic was was putting it mildly. So Wisner did a very, during the transition, he did a very quick review of NASA and Project Mercury, and he issued to Kennedy a pretty dire report. And he said, NASA is bereft of leadership. It has a terrible morale problem. It's behind in every important respect. And he said, Project Mercury, by the way, the manned space program, he said, is such a disaster that I I think you should begin to distance yourself from it because you don't want to own the failure of this thing. 
we may have to talk about whether we should just cancel the manned space program altogether. But for now, you should kind of step back from it. Now, Kennedy didn't take that advice, but he also didn't do anything particularly affirmative. In fairness to Kennedy, I think it's important to take a look around the world. And this is what I try to do. I think too often we have a a timeline in mind for the space race and what's happening on that front and another timeline for what's happening in the Cold War as if they were separate realities. But for Kennedy and for everyone else, they were part of the same reality. And so space has to compete and relate to, in some way, what's happening in Berlin where the Soviets are constantly threatening the West and in Southeast Asia and in Cuba and in other parts of the world where Khrushchev was promising to wage, in his words, wars of liberation against the capitalist powers. And so that took precedence for Kennedy, reasonably enough, but space wouldn't wait for very long because the Soviets were, were going to force the issue, as they did in, in April of 1961 when they sent the first man into space, Yuri Gagarin. One of your earlier books, Mutual Contempt, was about Lyndon Johnson, Robert Kennedy's antipathy toward each other. What roles did each of them serve in promoting and advancing the space program once the administration took its place? Robert Kennedy was involved in just about everything of importance to his brother. He was, as was said at the time, he was, uh, well, as John Kennedy said at the time, Bobby was the second most powerful man in the world. It was sort of half joking, but it was also kind of true. But one area where he didn't get particularly involved was space. And Lyndon Johnson had been given responsibility within the White House for space because of his leadership in the late 1950s, as we were discussing last time, that Johnson had led hearings to examine why the United States had had fallen behind the Soviet Union uh, from the very start. And so when Kennedy was elected, he asked Johnson to be the chairman of the Space Council within the White House. And so Johnson got to work and he began to fill the positions there. But without a presidential push, nothing really was going to get done. And so Johnson was lost in in a kind of holding pattern until, again, Yuri Gagarin orbited the Earth and suddenly... The Soviets having forced the issue, Kennedy realized that he needed to decide what he was going to do. He needed to decide quickly, and it needed to be, in his own words, dramatic, and it needed to help us to win. And so he turned to Lyndon Johnson to help him figure out what that would be. And Johnson already had an answer, which was that we needed to go to the moon. When the Mercury program gets a group of candidates, what attributes were they looking for from these men? in order to uh, successfully complete the astronaut program. Well, what's interesting and and sort of funny, if you've ever seen the right stuff, Mm -hmm. um, and I talk about this in the book as well, is that they had a series of physical tests, as you would expect, but also psychological tests, because the psychological unknowns in space were, were so profound. And NASA wanted to be sure, needed to be sure, that these were stable individuals, that they weren't hot shots, that they weren't gonna do something reckless and uh, that they were seasoned. And so they, they picked guys, they, they were not young guys in their 20s. These were guys in their 30s. They were all married, they had families, and they had supposedly, it was believed, kind of worked a lot of that stuff, the crazy out of their system by the time they got into the program. So yes, consummate skill in the cockpit, as you would expect, but also these, these personality traits that would suggest that they would be able to handle this and not lose their minds. 
Now, you mentioned The Right Stuff, and of course it was a a huge successful book, a movie, and then a a TV series last year. But this is kind of some well-tread territory that you've gone over in this book. What different angle did you find that made you really want to pursue this? First of all, that I love that book. It's one of the reasons that I got interested in all of this. I love the book. I enjoyed the the movie very much. I'm, I'm a fan. But what's missing, among other things, from The Right Stuff, again, is this broader context. It's certainly not escaped Tom Wolfe's notice or anybody's notice that we were racing against the Russians and there is a, a Cold War aspect to the struggle. But in, in that book and in many other books on the subject, the Cold War is sort of background. It's, it's atmosphere. It's not a central player. And NASA and the space effort kind of exists a little bit in a, in a bubble or in a vacuum. And I felt that that was what was missing from Tom Wolfe's book and other books. And then when I read the Cold War books on my shelf, I felt that they didn't spend enough time talking about the space race and why that was part of the picture. And so really what I decided to do was to try to bring these things back into the same frame in the same moment as they existed for for John Kennedy and for for everyone at at that point in time. As, As we've discussed, this was really part of the same struggle. And so you can't separate it very well from what was going on in Berlin. It was related. You cannot separate it from the Soviet nuclear tests over the plains of of Central Asia in the summer of 1961. It was all part of the same picture. And Kennedy would refer to these things in the same sentence. And so, again, that was what I wanted to restore here. The other thing that, that I wanted to do, we've been talking about John Glenn, is that I, I feel that in the right stuff, And therefore, given its success in a lot of other accounts as well, Glenn is reduced to a kind of two-dimensional figure. He's the goody-two-shoes astronaut. He's the sanctimonious moralist of the astronauts. And of course, there are elements of of truth to this. It's not invented. And yet, it just seemed to me that, that Glenn had to be more interesting and more complex than this. So I went looking to see if I was right about that. And I went into his files at his archives at Ohio State. And the Glenn that I found there, the Glenn that I found in his diaries from World War II, the Glenn that I found in his letters home from Korea, where he talked about his combat there and shooting down MiGs, the Glenn that I found in the margins of NASA memos and flight plans, who is marking out his disagreements in the margins with his superiors and preparing himself for very contentious meetings where he was going to tell his his so-called superiors exactly what he thought about the flight plan that they were putting together and exactly why it was irresponsible for them to make these skilled pilots fold their hands and let the autopilot fly the capsule. That John Glenn is not in the right stuff or, or really in, in, in any other account that I'd read. And so that feeling that there was more to both of these aspects of the story is, is what led me to want to write this book. And speaking about that automated aspect, they got fighter pilots and test pilots, and they appreciated their ability to not crack under pressure, but then they just wanted them to be passengers as well. It is a contradiction that was built into the the program from the beginning. When they brought these candidates, these top test pilots and former combat pilots, many of them into the Pentagon for briefings to tell them what the program was about and to make sure that they actually really wanted to apply. One of the things that, that they told 
these candidates was you're the top pilots and this is a new experimental aircraft, this spacecraft, and, and we want you to fly it. But that really wasn't true. And the bias among the engineers and within NASA was that the astronaut was what one of the engineers called a problem child. Why was he a problem child? Well, a couple reasons. One is that you put him in a capsule in front of a control panel and he wants to do stuff. He wants to flip switches. He wants to fly the thing. And there was the feeling that it would be better to let this capsule fly itself because people might make mistakes in space. They might have terrible judgment. Who knew what they were going to do? So it would be best if they could just leave well enough alone. The other reason that the astronaut was called a problem child was because there was the problem of having to keep him alive. That was difficult. It required a lot of other aspects uh, to the program. It required a lot of other systems and so forth. And if you were just sending an automated capsule up there. And so the astronauts from the very beginning recognized that they'd been kind of sold a bill of goods at the Pentagon and that they were the best in their view and in NASA's view, the best test pilots in America. And yet they were essentially being asked to be passengers in a tin can going up there. And this is what, of course, Chuck Yeager and the other test pilots at Edwards Air Force Base would say when they would make fun of them. And that's where you get that line spam in a can. And the idea that they used to be great pilots, but they were just guinea pigs now. They were just passengers. And it stung. It made them extremely mad because on a certain level, they felt, well, maybe that's kind of true. And so they began to wage this campaign, the astronauts did, and Glenn really led it to get more control of the flight. And it was a fight that went on right for Glenn, right to the very eve of, of his flight. It seems in the book that Soviet scientists thought the same way as the NASA scientists did. There was not a whole lot of human interaction going on in Gagarin and Titov's shots either. The Soviets took an even more extreme view of this. Gagarin wasn't allowed to do anything. When we sent our astronauts up, they were supposed to leave the capsule on autopilot most of the time, but they also were given a range of things to do to test their capabilities and to test the capabilities of, of the capsule and so forth. But Gagarin really was just sealed into the Vostok, as it was called, and, and, and sent up there and, and brought back. But of course, this was another benefit of the Soviet program, secrecy, that they could tell the world any story they wanted. And so when the Soviets sent the second cosmonaut into space to orbit the Earth in August of 1961, his name was German Titov, they told this fantastic story when he came back about his ability to maneuver this craft. They described it almost like he was flying a fighter plane in space, which was not in any way true. But it was accepted in the United States because we had such a belief in this country in the capacity of the Soviets to do spectacular things in space. And so if they said that he was maneuvering his capsule around and that he could land the thing anywhere on Earth, that was another lie that they told. Well, it was very hard to discount that. It wasn't true, but it wasn't disproven either because we didn't have the evidence. What was some of the rhetoric Khrushchev used in talking about America's attempts in going into space? Well, Khrushchev had a lot of fun with it for, for a period of time because the United States was so obviously behind. And I mentioned Gagarin, when he went up in April of 1961, he orbited the Earth. He orbited once and he came back safely. And then we followed that in short succession with two flights that didn't get into orbit. 
They weren't supposed to get into orbit. It's not as if that was a surprise. Al Shepard and then Gus Grissom rode up on a Redstone rocket that was not powerful enough to get there. And these suborbital flights were sort of unspectacular. They were 15 minutes long from start to finish. They went up and they came right back down almost in the same spot on the water and not on the land. And Khrushchev, after Titov had not just orbited the Earth, making him the second Russian to do that, Titov orbited the Earth 17 and a half times. He orbited the Earth for, for 24 hours. And so when Khrushchev held a celebration of that, he said, you know, I feel sorry for the Americans. All they get to do is jump up and then, and then splash down. I'm glad that the poor fellow didn't drown. He was referring to Gus Grissom, who had nearly drowned, actually exiting his capsule in the water in an accident that was a huge embarrassment for, for NASA. The purpose of the program ultimately on the Soviets' part was propaganda, and it was succeeding for a time spectacularly. And so part of the effort on Khrushchev's part was to make a great spectacle of their successes and to ridicule the United States for its failures. And speaking of public opinion and PR, Glenn had a public profile before getting into the program, and while his colleagues disliked him sometimes for his Boy Scout ways, I'm sure a lot of that was driven by jealousy, knowing this guy's high profile. I mean, we really got to go against him if we expect to jump the queue. They were jealous, and they were also concerned, as he said, they were concerned that Glenn's celebrity was going to affect the outcome of the contest. Every one of the seven, as you would expect, wanted to be the first man in space. And then when the Russians claimed that, they wanted at least to be the first American in space. And they were worried that Glenn was such a celebrity. He was so much better at the public relations piece of this than, than any of the rest of them, that that was going to decide it, that NASA was going to decide that it wanted its first astronaut to be the most obvious hero, somebody who really could be the role model for American children and for children around the world, and that Glenn would get the nod. That was the expectation within the program. Frankly, it was Glenn's own expectation. I mean, he didn't think he was second to anyone in terms of his ability to, to fly anything. And yet he also had this huge advantage in terms of his, his popular profile. But ironically enough, the resentment that the astronauts felt about that was shared by some of the senior officials at NASA. If you read, as I did, and I quote a lot from it, there was an unpublished memoir by Walt Williams who was the director of Project Mercury. And every page is bristling with resentment at Glenn's popular profile. They don't like the fact that the cameras are, are following Glenn around, except when they decide to use that for public relations purposes. NASA had a, a very contradictory sense of this. They would push Glenn out there to be the focus of attention, and then they would resent him for it. <laughs> he sort of couldn't win with Williams and, and some of these guys. So when it does finally come time to pick the, the first astronaut to fly, Shepard gets the edge, in part because Shepard has kept his head down and just been training and focused. Of course, Glenn has, has done the same thing, but Shepard hasn't incurred any resentment along the way, and Glenn has. But it was Glenn who pulled Shepard's bacon out of the fire when Shepard almost got caught in a Me Too situation. That's right. And Glenn had been warning the astronauts, and you can imagine how they responded to being warned, by the way, about this. But Glenn had said, look, your relationship with your wife, your infidelity is your own business. 
until it isn't. And we are now, whether you like it or not, we are national figures. We are role models. We are representing the United States of America. And if you get caught, as he said, with your pants unzipped, it's not just going to be an embarrassment to you and your family, but it's going to be a blow to the program. He said, who knows? We're, we're always in a vulnerable position. Maybe the president is going to wind up canceling the program. At the very least, it's going to embarrass America in the eyes of the world. So keep your pants zipped. Well, you know, they weren't particularly persuaded by this. And so in the off hours, they continued to do what they did, which was go to bars and meet women who were not their wives and that sort of thing that men tended to do with impunity in the 1950s and the 1960s. Well, what you're referring to is in the fall of, of 1959, they'd only been astronauts for several months at this point. They were on a trip to San Diego. They were visiting a, a factory there and, and doing some other things. So it was involved with the space program. And at night, they did what I described, and they hit the jazz bars. And Al Shepard decided to go across the border to Tijuana and with a woman who was not his wife. And he was trailed by a photographer and a reporter who then came back and were ready to, to run this story. And news of this filtered to the, the group there. And Glenn decided to intervene. He said, let me take care of this. And he made a series of phone calls. He called the reporter. He called the editor of the paper. He called the publisher. And he said, look, he gave them a, a patriotic speech. And he said, look, we're in a, a battle with the godless communists and we're losing. And if you run this story, it's going to set us even, even farther back. So why would you do this? So they didn't. They actually listened to Glenn and they pulled the story. But the problem for Glenn after doing Shepard and the whole program this favor was that he overplayed his hand and he summoned the other astronauts, all of them, to a hotel room the following morning and he let them have it. I mean, he really gave them a dressing down like he was in charge. And he said, I've been warning you all along and now it's finally happened. And the only reason that we're not in big trouble is because I intervened to pull you out of it. He said, this kind of stuff has got to stop. And rather than be ashamed by this, Alan Shepard was defiant and said, essentially, who are you to tell us what to do? Five of the astronauts took this view. The only one who, who aligned himself with Glenn was, was Scott Carpenter. And so there was a big split between the five and the, and the two. And it was one that always persisted. I hadn't known about Shepard's well-heeled background back on the East Coast coming from a very important family. Do you think that kind of played into his attitude of, I don't have to take orders from you? Shepard had a, a very imperious personality. I mean, he was very cool. He was very aloof. Calling it an aristocratic background would be overstating it, but he did come from a well-heeled family in New England and in, in New Hampshire. He traced his roots back to the, the Mayflower. And that's right. He was not interested in, in taking uh, orders or suggestions from, from John Glenn. That was for certain. There was also a, a term that doesn't quite mean the same thing in common English usage as it is in the, the parlance of the astronauts in the military. What was sniveling? Sniveling in the military context is working the system, kind of manipulating it and manipulating people to get what you want, rather than simply falling in line and accepting whatever you are told and whatever you are given. It's kind of going behind the scenes, working the, the levers. And this is something that, that Glenn did very well, and he did very proudly. I mean, sniveling is not a word that you would want attached to you, and I don't think he particularly cared for the word. But he said in his later years, look, I, I've never felt that your role in this life or even in the military was to just sit back and let things happen to you, that you need to, to be an active agent in deciding your own fate. So 
when he was training for service in World War II to go out to the Pacific and he was assigned to these big multi-engine planes that seemed very boring to him. He went over the head of his commanding officer and he, and he campaigned to get into Corsairs, into fighter planes. And he got a severe dressing down, as you would expect to that. And, and he was made to wait. Ultimately, he did, though, get what he wanted. And Glenn had a history of refusing to take no for an answer, campaigning, finding a way, and finding a way to get what he wanted. And this was what you see happening in 1961, at the beginning of 1961, when Bob Gilruth, the head of the Space Task Group, makes the decision that Al Shepard will fly first, that Gus Grissom will fly second, and that Glenn will be back up to both of them. Glenn refuses to take no for an answer, and he begins quietly and persistently campaigning for Gilruth to change his decision. He wrote a long letter to Gilruth saying that he felt that he was being unfairly pushed out of the rotation because he had spoken up about the, the conduct of his fellow astronauts and that he was being punished, in effect, for telling these guys to keep their pants up. And Gilruth just never responded to the letter. Ultimately, Glenn had to accept that the ruling was final. And it was one of the only times in his life when that sort of approach, again, what the military calls sniveling, did not get him what he wanted. Now, we'll leave it to the reader to discover the buildup to the Friendship 7 flight that Glenn eventually takes and the details of the flight itself that are just so fascinating. But in going back to the topic of the Cold War, this was a time when fear was palpable, that nuclear annihilation was just around the corner. There was the duck and cover cartoons telling kids how to survive nuclear fallout. And so whenever there was a defeat or success in the space program, it was just such a huge thing in the society that I don't think we would really recognize that nowadays. No, I think we, we see space as, again, being kind of its own storyline and, and not that integral to anything else that, that's going on. But again, in 1961, 1962, uh, it, was, it was seen to be otherwise. Let, let me just give you one example of the way this played out. Just look at a few-week period in August of 1961. So August 6th, German Titov, as I mentioned, becomes the second Russian to orbit the Earth, orbits for 24 hours. One week later, the communists begin building the wall in Berlin. And two weeks after that, the Soviets decide they're going to break the moratorium on testing nuclear weapons in the atmosphere that it held since 1958. And they begin to explode over Central Asia, these 50 megaton bombs, each one of which was more powerful than all of the explosives in, in all of World War II, including the, the two atomic bombs. And all of this is happening over just a few weeks. So in the fall of, of 1961, you have this mounting sense of, of profound anxiety. John Kennedy gives a speech to Congress and the nation in September of 1961. And mostly what he talks about is civil defense is fallout shelters and how the federal government is going to provide more funding to cities and organizations to build fallout shelters. The poet Robert Lowell around that time writes a poem called Fall 1961. One of the lines in that poem is, we're talking our extinction to death. I mean, this was the sense of what was going on in the world. And meanwhile, John Glenn was grounded. He sat there waiting at Cape Canaveral. Every time he was scheduled to fly, the flight was was scrubbed and it was technical problems of many different kinds. It was bad weather. It was one thing after another. Month after month goes by in this atmosphere that I'm describing and we cannot 
get Glenn into orbit. And, and the newspapers begin to describe this, and this is a quote from a number of them. They call it our national ordeal, the fact that, that we can't get Glenn into space. So the stakes were seen to be significant, and the failure to get Glenn into space was seen to be representative of a larger set of problems the U.S. was facing, existential problems. Can you share with us your next project that you're working on? Well, if I if I knew what it was, Stephen, I would share it with you. Um, I've got to do some thinking, but um, right now I'm just happy to be thinking and talking about John Glenn and John Kennedy, and and uh, and then I'll I'll sort out what to do next. But I, I do I do love to do this work. I do love to to find stories like this and and uh, and write books. So hopefully we'll have a chance to to talk again before too long. I sure hope so. Thank you again. It's been a, a fabulous time. Thank you, Stephen. Take care. Jeff Schessel is the author of Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War, which is published by W.W. Norton. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the city of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.